that silent night when the stars turn their gaze to marvel at the earth. When the heavens gathered breathless round a lowly stable. When a young mother wept tears of worship falling on the baby in her arms. And the song of the earth arose in Bethlehem soft as the tender beating of his heart. And all was calm. All was bright. Yet could this be the same God of Abraham, the conqueror of Israel? This baby, this fragile life. Is this child the one who burned his name in rapture across the gasping skies? Whose voice spoke the oceans into crashing rhythms? Who crafted the mountains into guardians of the firmament? of the deserts and the warring surge of the elemental hosts who breathed life from dust broke the oppressor's rule scattered the chains of his people like sand and led them through the wilderness with a pillar of flame is this child the one whose presence billowed thunderous on sinai's peak who surrounded job with the roaring wind stood defiant in the raging furnace, wrote judgment against tyrants, and blazed on the lips of the prophets, scorching history's pages with the fury of his might. Could this be the same God who chose to come as the vulnerable king, setting his throne on straw and manger, drawing forth the tears of shepherds, receiving the gifts of wandering travelers, his fame unknown in this world. He is Jesus, the one who thunders through the heavens, yet whispers to our hearts, who reigns victorious, yet bows to serve the broken. He is God in the fury, silence. He holds this mystery balanced in his hands, holds our questions till they lose their need, until all we see is him. Thank you, Jesus. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples praise him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear, the one who rises to rule the Gentiles. The Gentiles will hope in him. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we have together this afternoon. Lord, we're mindful and thankful of your word that washes over us, that speaks to us at this point in history of all that you have done and continue to do in and through our lives. Lord, thank you that you sent your son, Jesus, Lord, who left heaven, left his position of, of royalty on the throne to come down to earth in the form of a child in our flesh and blood to sympathize with our weakness and our vulnerability to sin and yet blazed a trail so that we could follow after him, leading the way to everlasting life, to live according to your ways, your kingdom principles, values. 
Lord, thank you for this time we have together as we're encouraged and moved by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's great to have you here uh, this afternoon. I just want to make a few remarks. I know that there's some folk that are away today who aren't feeling well. And so, you know, guys, if you're watching online, we're thinking of you. We miss you. And of course, uh, we're praying for you. We don't say that lightly. Um, when the messages came in this morning of those who said, I'm not feeling well. I'm not going to be there today. You, you go into prayer mode and you start praying and believing. How many of you are thankful that we believe that God still heals and still can touch? Amen. I couldn't imagine living a faith relationship with God, but believe that wasn't possible anymore. Kind of crazy. But anyway, we're thankful for you. We're praying for you. And uh, we know you'll be back soon. So this afternoon, we're going to turn to the book of Matthew as we continue in our Advent series. Today, we're looking at joy. Joy. We're kind of carrying over from last week. There was a little bit of a spillover. Last week when I was preaching, I was telling my brother this this week. I said, you know, bro, when I was going through it, I forgot that I, you know, wrote this series in advance and I had notes and big, bold star letters saying, you know, don't go here until the following week. But I was so excited last week when we were looking at it, I just kind of went right into it. Um, so we're going to, in a way, pick up where we uh, left off. But we're going to start in Matthew chapter And I think as we look at this story, the story of these wise men who have come from the far east, I believe that we're going to be filled not only with the peace that God still moves and shows signs that draw us to him, but we will be overfilled with joy as we trust in him and have faith in him as we seek him. Psalm chapter 16, verse 11, we're told this, you reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. I can't begin to tell you the amount of people that I come across who are faith believers, born-again believers like yourself, one of the key pieces, I would say, is joy. Like the one song singer who wrote, wrote and sang, joy, unspeakable joy, overflowing well, right? He fills us with this joy. And so I think the psalmist is bang on. How about Habakkuk, the prophet of the Lord who said this in chapter 3, verse 18, yet, now he's talking about all these difficult circumstances that I face, yet I will celebrate the Lord, I will rejoice in the God of my salvation, Though no matter what we face, like the movie that we saw a few moments ago said, in the fury of life, no matter what we face, I will rejoice in the Lord because he's the rock of my salvation. The enemy can be at the gates. He can even send his troops, like we're going to see in our story, and they can even threaten death. But at the end of the day, they cannot take away that which we cherish most, the rock of our salvation. And so let's go to Matthew chapter 2. Um, There were a lot of uh, titles swirling through my mind as I was preparing this message. So I have a couple, a couple titles. One is overjoyed. Are you overjoyed? (laughs) The other one is wise men still seek him. And those who seek him are filled with joy. And so I want to land there today. And we're going to look at some really um, important characters in this Christmas story. So let's go right from the beginning of Matthew chapter 2. We see here, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king 
of the Jews. For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this was what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so my first point that I want to look at here this afternoon with you is all seekers are welcome. I don't know about you, but as I was reading the story, it just jumped out at me that these wise men are on a journey. Just like us, we are all on a journey. We're all seeking out after God. It's an incredible promise that he says, when you seek me with your whole heart, I will be found by you. That's by the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29. And last week we looked at how a gentleman by the name of Simeon, it was a God-fearing man, that after Jesus had been born and they brought him to the temple to go through the, the customary rituals of circumcision and stuff, he was guided there by the Spirit. In Luke chapter 2, verse 27, he says, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised, for my eyes have seen your salvation. My eyes have seen your salvation. And this is the part we don't want to forget, that in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people. And glory to your people, Israel. And so here we know Simeon's been waiting. He's, he has this peace that now he has seen the child, the promised one, come to fruition. He was waiting for that day to happen. And as we go back to our story, we see that these wise men have arrived on scene and they've been following a star. They've been following the star that's, that's a promise in Isaiah 7:14 that the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel, God with us. And when the angel appeared to Joseph, he said, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit and she will give birth to a son and you're to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So here we have Joseph's receive a word from the angel. We have Simeon that had a word from the Holy Spirit saying to him that this light for the Gentiles is not only for people Israel, but for all the people of the world and that he's a light for the entire world. And I think the fire for effect that God is showing us and the author Matthew is, is really giving us the um, importance here is that these travelers from the east are signifying that this light, this salvation is truly for all people. Because they're not Jews. They're traveling from the far east, more than likely Babylon or Arabia, but they're not Jews. We know that. They're not Jews. And so let's dive into that a little bit. Let's see what's going on here. Right in verse 1, there's a lot happening. We see here it says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We know this is really important because Bethlehem was the home of who? David. 
David was born there. He was reared there. He grew up at that location. And so other than David and this child being born in Bethlehem, Bethlehem is fairly insignificant on its own account. It's a small village-like place, and yet it was the birthplace of David whom God said, I will give you an enduring kingdom, the seed of your loins. He fulfilled, promised to fulfill that promise. And so it's also the location in Bethlehem where the angels broke the silence, that 400-year-plus silence, where they declared to the shepherds, remember the shepherds last week? They declared to them, you know, do not be afraid. For we bring you good news of great joy that today to you is given a son. It says this, today in the city of David, a savior was born for you who is Messiah, the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped tightly in cloth and lying in a manger. And it says the shepherds went, they went to Bethlehem. And when they returned... They said, and we're glorifying and praising God because of all the things they had seen and heard. So we see here from the shepherds, the people of Israel, that this light of salvation is both for the Jews and the Gentiles. And that when they seek him out, they're filled with joy and great praise. So let's continue on. Right here in verse 1, it says that these wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem. You know, we have the Christmas carol that talks about these wise men. And if you really stop to think about it, as, you know, I've never really pondered the carol before, to be honest with you, I realize there's a lot of things in the carol that we're assuming. There's a lot of assumptions going on. We don't know for sure if there were actually three wise men. There were three gifts. We know if there were for sure three men. But who were these wise guys? Wise guys. Help remember, who are those wise guys? Well, if we go on a little bit of search in the Daniel, who was one of the trusted advisors for King Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire, that we are shown in Daniel chapter 5, verse 7, that these wise men were called magi. And magi was a word that was a broad scope term that would cover different things that these wise men were good at. From research, it shows that these guys, these wise guys, were skilled in interpreting dreams, but really diving into the occult, into supernatural phenomenon to interpret and explain dreams. And they had a great uh, influence as practitioners of astrology. And I have to admit, as I was studying for this, I had to learn the, the difference between astronomy and astrology, right? Astronomy is just you're studying the stars and the constellations. Astrology is you're looking at these stars and seeing how they have an influence and impact on the course of human history. And that's where we get horoscopes and are you a cancer, are you a Leo? And you would, you know, base your life off the formation of the, of the star and such, of these constellations. And we see in Daniel, as I said, Daniel chapter 5, how important these wise men were in their own region. It says here, the king shouted to bring in the mediums the Chaldeans and the diviners. And he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this inscription and gives its interpretation will be clothed in purple, will have a gold chain around his neck and have the third highest position in the kingdom. And so these wise guys were pretty important people. 
We know they're students of the stars, but they're also, what I found interesting, students of all kinds of literature. They love to read and study, especially that which connected with predicting the future based on what's happening in the heavens. The firmament and thereof, what was happening there, they believed that there would be a significant event on earth that would be parallel to the sign in the heavens. So here we see this star. And so it makes sense that these wise men have appeared on scene because it says, where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. So they're, they're following this sign. And maybe like me, you're asking the question, well, how do we know for sure whether they're from Babylon or from Arabia or, you know, it's like the song Arabian Nights. Is it something like that? I don't know. Thanks, Brad. I appreciate the the little laughter there. I appreciate it, seriously. And so, you know, we look into it and I thought what was interesting about one of the gifts that the wise men gave, one of these wise guys, was frankincense. And frankincense, just kind of amazing, is on its own, it's not really much in that it's this odorless, um, gum-like substance. Apparently it's very glittery, however, so maybe there's some beauty to it. But there's not really much importance to it until it's actually burned. And when you ignite it and then burn it, it then has this pleasing aroma. And what's incredible is this frankincense would be used um, in the anointing oil and such, but used when the Jewish people would give sacrifices to God. Now back to how we can, we can determine where they're coming from. Frankincense, its origin, its native um, origin is Babylon. That's one of its you know, key producers of frankincense. That's, that's its origin place. And so you know, we can assume that Babylon is more than likely where these wise guys are coming from. And maybe like me, you like to know location. You know, in, with realtors who sell homes, they say location, location, location is everything. And so maybe that gives a little food for thought as you ponder this story about these wise guys who came from the East. Now what's incredible here is in, in uh, verse 2 it says, Where is he who's been born king of the Jews? Do you notice anything interesting about that verse? Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Here's something I never actually caught before in you know, first reading, is that they're proclaiming that this king who's been born is already king, but they haven't said, notice, where's this baby And the reason why I'm emphasizing that is the distance from Babylon, if these wise guys did in fact come from Babylon, that journey was about a four to eight month journey by just a direct route. So if it was favorable conditions, they had about a 1,500 kilometer distance to travel. But you could imagine when the weather isn't so good and there's probably dangers and different things along the way, it could take between eight to 12 months So historians will say, realistically, this is about a 2,700-kilometer journey because of the necessary routes and terrain during this season. So now it makes sense why later on, Herod makes a proclamation to kill all the children in Bethlehem under the age of two. 
So he's covering all his bases. And I found that, you know, very interesting because it helps us just get an understanding of what's happening in this story. And so how could these wise men have known about this star in the first place? This is something that really racked my, my brain when I was a kid. You know, how did they have this information to know that this was in fact pointing to the son of God, the child to be born? And in further study and review, well, I think we could all answer that question. Well, wait, weren't the Jews exiled in Babylon? And if there was this great number of Jews in Babylon, we know that they're excellent storytellers, they would have rubbed shoulders with the Babylonians and they would have shared these stories and these prophecies of what they were hoping for and what was promised to them. That out of Bethlehem, a star, the root of Jesse, the hope for the Gentiles would be there. And so it's natural that these Babylonians then would have access to these records, access to these manuscripts. And so rightfully so, these wise guys are also about reading literature. And so they're on journey because of what they have learned. And there's a reason why I'm emphasizing that. We're going to get there in a few moments. Check out uh, Psalm chapter 19. This is one of these wonderful, powerful passages of scripture that you've heard, you would hear from time to time when maybe you're at a conference and someone's leading worship. Brad, probably many worship leaders. John, many have probably shared this passage. In Psalm 19, 1 verse 10, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims the work of his hands. Think about this. The Babylonians, these wise guys, they looked at stars as a means to dictate or predict what was going to happen to them in the future. Whereas the Jews were looking to the firmament as a testimony of God's promise, his sovereignty, his might to fulfill what he promised. You see the difference there? There's a big difference. And so as the psalmist continues, it says, day after day, they pour out speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Their message has gone out to the whole earth and their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pinched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming from his home. It rejoices like an athlete running a course. It rises from one end of the heavens and circles to the other end. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one life. The testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. And so these wise guys, you could imagine if they had access to any of this, would be saying, we truly want to be wise. We don't want to be inexperienced, that we study the stars. And here there's this prophecy about this child to be born in Bethlehem. We need to seek this out. Again, all seekers are welcome. Psalms 50 verse 6, the heavens proclaim his righteousness for God is the judge. And so these wise guys have gone on this long journey of over 2,700 kilometers fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 60 verse 3, nations will come to your light and kings to your shining brightness. And so they're following this star. Maybe they were aware, maybe they weren't of God's sovereignty, his plan, and this being a guiding point, a sign to draw people to the son who was being born. 
Perhaps maybe they found this chronicle in Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Maybe it was the fuel in their fuel tank. Now, we know they were probably riding camels, which I understand camels are pretty fast, but still camels need water, they need fuel. So in a way, maybe this following verse was fuel for their souls, wondering if this was a pursuit in vain or not. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I perceive him, but not near. A star will come from Jacob, and a scepter will rise from Israel. He will smash the forehead of Moab and strike down all the Shittites. Micah 5, 2. Bethlehem, you were small among the clans of Judah. One will come from you to be ruler over Israel for me. His origin is from antiquity and from ancient times. And so we, we don't know full well exactly what was their driving force, but the thing I want to emphasize here is that they were seeking. How many of you would testify and believe that what the Bible says that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him? He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So either the star in the sky, when they say, where is this king who's been born king of the Jews? It's either an alignment of the heavenlies, or a supernatural event that only God can fully explain. And what I found interesting in researching this, because from time to time, there's records by scribes and historians that it can account for this phenomenon, even in biblical times. So I went on a little bit of a search, if that's okay. And there's this German astronomer by the name of Kepler. He's the same gentleman who discovered the three laws that govern orbital motion. And in a book entitled The Birth of Messiah, and the author's name is Brown, Brown says that Kepler pointed out that in the Roman year of 7 BC, there occurred a conjunction of planets of Jupiter and Saturn, a sign sometimes connected in ancient astrology with the Hebrews. And he's referring to Jupiter and Saturn. Many details can be fitted to this suggestion, not least that medieval Jews saw messianic significance in the same planetary conjunction. But there is no solid evidence that the ancients referred to such conjunctions as stars. And even at their closest proximity, which I'm just sharing, I found this very interesting, Jupiter and Saturn would have had to been about one degree apart a perceived distance about twice the diameter of the moon and therefore never fused into one image. So here we have the wise men, they're following a star, not a plethora or multiple stars, a star. So Kepler goes on to say, well, maybe this was a supernova. And I got to appreciate this, this guy's trying to figure this thing out, allowing science to help give some, you know, fuel to this thing. And so he believes that maybe it was a supernova. But what's interesting about a supernova, when you do the research, is it's a faint star that violently explodes, gives off this enormous amount of light for a few weeks or so, but it's not in motion. It's not specifically a marker or a, a blip on the GPS of specifically going to a specific location. It's kind of erratic. And here we see in our story, they say, for we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. And it said, after they left the palace, when they saw the star, 
It came above the place where the child was. So they followed it and it had stopped above the place where the child was in verse nine. So here we have the star is in motion. It's specifically moving to point them which way to go, which would really show us and give us faith that God was supernaturally involved with a sign to show the wise men, these Gentiles, the location of this child. And so let's move on. What, what do you think was the focus here? What, the author, Matthew, what do you think he was trying to emphasize? He's definitely not emphasizing astrology, thank God. He's not even, you know, giving credence or telling everybody, go home and become astronomers. I think the emphasis here, we're going to park it for the rest of the time here, is worship. Looking to the signs in heaven, not as evidence to believe in God, but to worship that he truly is magnificent, that he truly is above all things. And so we see in the story, the thrust takes a shift from this about the star that's rising and leading into this child, and it focuses to worship and true worship. It says, we saw his star rising and have come to worship him. We've come to worship him. And so worship is defined as reverence and adoration. I'm sure you already knew that. Worship is reverence and adoration. Here we see they're saying, we're coming here to worship him. But apparently in the manuscripts, which I also found interesting, was that it can also mean homage. And homage means to pay tribute or show respect of someone of special honor. And so we could say, well, maybe the wise men weren't really there to worship the child, but were there to give him gifts to pay tribute. Whatever it may be, whatever the purpose for them being there, I have to trust and believe that God is judge and he knows every person's heart. He knew the heart of these wise guys. And regarding worship, check out this verse in Psalm 29, verse 1. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. And so do you think the wise men, when they are on scene, do you think from the manuscripts that they read, do you think their eyes were opened by the Spirit of God to receive who Christ really was? Who this child really was? Do you think they, uh, they discerned that he was divine? Only God knows. And yet in the aspect of this, in preparation of this message, because God judges the heart and the thoughts of every man and woman, it is possible, it's plausible, these wise men may have had an encounter with the Spirit of God leading them to Bethlehem. And so we see the desired to worship him. They desired to worship him, but yet Herod was kind of ticked off. What are these wise men doing here? What are these wise men doing here? So point number two is encountering the sun brings us to a crossroads. Encountering the sun brings us to a crossroads. Look at uh, verse three. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. 
So here we see this true worship of the wise men, but now Herod, he's truly showing us this false worship. Because we can go forward to verse 16, that God knows the heart of this king, that he wants to snuff out this light. He wants to put an end to this prophecy, the one who would challenge his illegitimate rule. Remember last week we looked at how Herod, he wasn't a Jew. We believe he was an Edomite. His wife apparently had Jewish descent, but he was not a Jew. He was not, therefore, of royal descent. And so we saw this child as a threat and had a price on his head, but he was smart. He was telling the, you know, these wise guys, well, once you find him, let, it, let me know where he is, and I will go and worship him too. But he wasn't counting on the fact of God's intervention, God knowing and moving in this encounter. We see here in the same verse, it says all Jerusalem was with him. And that kind of took me back for a minute. Well, what do you mean all Jerusalem was with Herod? Historians show us that Herod was a very cruel ruler. He was a very paranoid king. He kind of started off well. He had some programs for taking care of people and those who didn't have much provision. But then very quickly, power corrupted him, and he became so paranoid, at one point, he killed his wife and two of his children. In fact, he was so paranoid and just fueled with the, not wanting to lose his kingdom that on the day of his death, he had hundreds of people executed so that there would be people weeping at his funeral. He wasn't in a good place. He wasn't in the right mind. And so why would the people of Jerusalem be with Herod? They're definitely not cheering him on. They're definitely not saying, yeah, King Herod, you rock. You're the best king we've ever had. Guaranteed, they're thinking back to the days of David. But it's because of this paranoia, this fear that they had of the king. Who wants to ruffle Herod's feathers? And so here, these scribes we know would be Pharisees and the priests, the Sadducees, they come together, they don't want to tick Herod off, and so they come and they answer his question. And look at verses 4 through 6. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Christ would be born. And so they told him, out of Bethlehem, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so he calls in these experts, these ones who had known the knowledge of scriptures, and he might be wondering, well, where are you going with this? I'm trying to get there. They would have this understanding and knowledge of the scriptures, and yet the plethora of this knowledge doesn't guarantee true worship or true understanding of who God is that would motivate our praise. Here, when the wise men come, you would think the scribes and the priests would say, the king is, yes, that's what the scriptures say. Wise men, we're going to go with you. We're going to go and worship this child who has been born, the prophet or the prophesied Messiah. Instead, it was only the wise men who said, we've come here to worship him. And so perhaps the scribes, the priests, remained in their fear because of Herod. So take that nugget for, for whatever you will, but we see that when we encounter the child, when we encounter the child through the written word, that we come to a crossroads, what are we going to do? Will we worship him? Will we, will we ascribe to worship him like the wise men? Or maybe tuck tail? 
And so we see here in verses seven through eight, have to love that no matter what you're going through, when God calls you to something, when he's working through things in the course of human history, you cannot circumvent God. You can't fool him. Look at verses seven through eight. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. But the proverb says this in chapter 16, verse nine, a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. And so the wise men were at a crossroads that as they left the palace and went to Bethlehem, that God was working on their hearts to the point where he spoke to them in a dream saying, when you return, go another way. It says in verse 12, and being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. God cannot be fooled. God cannot be circumvented. Here we have this illegitimate false king trying to remove and snuff out this light. But God's showing like, no, 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 I'm the creator of the heavens and the earth. You're not going to be able to fool me, Herod. So let's go to verse 9 for a moment. It says here in verse 9, After hearing this, the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. You have to love that the star was specifically like a heat-seeking missile for these wise men. And I believe this was, in, a, in many regards, and this is my own personal take on this, was confirming the position and the state of these wise guys' hearts. Affirming that they were in the right place, that they truly wanted to go and worship this child who was born, the king of the Jews. And so the star in many ways was this sign of their faith, of their pursuit, and that being affirmed. Remember what I said earlier in Hebrews 1, 11, verse 6, sorry. Now without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So here we have the wise guys. They have access to all these manuscripts. It could be said, as I said earlier, that they may have very well believed and the, the message about this Messiah. We want to go and see this Messiah, Messiah for ourselves. And so look what happened in verse 10, this crossroads of encountering the child, encountering that their pursuit was not in vain. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. They weren't, I believe, just overwhelmed because their calculations were correct. Like, yes, we made it. Our studying of the stars and, these, and all this literature has brought us here. I believe they were overjoyed because their eyes were face to face with this child. Look what happened in verse 11. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. The star led them to the place, the very location. As they entered, they bowed, they fell to their knees and worshiped him. Now there's something drastic that's happened ever since this story of, of, this, of the child, of the Christ being born. At one point in time, our worship was redirected in some respects. And I'm not going to say this in disrespect of other faith groups, but at one point we elevated worship of the child, worship of Christ, and repositioned things. 
and started to worship Mary. Here it shows in verse 11, again, that when they came to the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. And this spoke to me that when we come to Jesus, point number three and final point, our posture is transformed. When we encounter the living Christ, our life is never the same. We bow down and worship for who he is, the one who created the heavens and the earth and the firmament thereof testify who he is. And so this star, this sign was important. And these wise guys got it. They bowed down and worshiped the King Jesus. And perhaps they were foreshadowing the statement given by the Apostle Paul who said in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. And this call to point for me, Andrew, what do you worship? What are the things that you bow down to in your life? What have you replaced Jesus with in your life? This is what this story has spoke to me, and I want to encourage you this Christmas season. What are the things maybe we've replaced in our life where Jesus should have the rightful position of worship and homage? How do we pay tribute to him? Not in a way that we have to buy our salvation, but just in honoring like these wise men who came on the scene, they offered precious, valuable gifts. Just think, all the gifts that God has given us that we sang about here this afternoon, he's given us so much. What do we want to give to him in return? What will we give to him in return? And so this involves giving him our greatest gifts. As the worship team comes, I'm going to invite them for us to respond in worship. But I think the Apostle Paul really helps illustrate these gifts of how we, we give in return to worship the King. It says in Romans chapter 12, and we're all familiar with this beginning part. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, I urge you to present your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God, this is your true worship. And he goes on to say what that looks like. He says, don't be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Romans 6.13, he says, Do not offer any parts of the body to sin or as weapons for unrighteousness, but as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. And so I'm encouraged this Christmas season as we look to this Christmas story of how the child arrived on scene and the star wasn't by accident. The star wasn't by accident. It brought these wise guys to the region so their eyes could be face-to-face with this child, the prophesied Messiah that would be a hope for all the world. A hope for all the world. And so whatever your position may be on the gifts, whether they were strategic, whether they were more than just symbolic, at the end of the day, these men gave the greatest gifts that they could give. They followed the star so that they could give these gifts. In the day-to-day, as we, as we follow God with our life, as we follow Jesus, what is he calling us to give? 
mean, one of the greatest gifts he's given us is forgiveness. One of the other greater gifts that he's given us is the ability and the empowerment to share the good news. The messengers who bring good news, the scripture says. That's another gift. I mean, if you think about it, he just keeps giving and giving and giving. And so this isn't a guilt trip. This definitely isn't a guilt trip of saying, you know, what have you, been, what have you done lately? Tony, what have you done lately? You know, what gifts are you offering the Lord this, this Christmas? That's not what this is about. Because there's times when we go seeking after these signs. We, we get ourselves in the wrong position. I think the takeaway here amongst all the other takeaways is not to chase after signs to believe, but truly trust that Jesus is who he says he is, what the scriptures say about him. And if we're like the wise men, if we embrace that sign, if we embrace the child, he's going to transform our life. He's going to meet us in our crossroads. And he's going to transform our posture and how we interact with one another and how we interact with the world. That we will respond in true worship. We will endeavor to worship him with our entire life, following he who is the light of the world. He who is light of the world. And so as we go here today, I want to remind us that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And so be mindful of the signs that God puts in your life. Be mindful as the Holy Spirit speaks to you. Because I believe, like you, that he still speaks today. It's not just history we're reading about here. We're scribes, in a way, of what God continues to do in and through our life. Let's be open to those signs and what God wants to show us. And remember, in the story with Herod, as I close this thing out, is that living for God, pursuing relationship with Jesus is never easy. Look what happened to the children in Bethlehem. The Herod, the evil one, was so upset that he took out every child under the age of two. This life in Christ is not an easy journey. It has bumps. It has travesties along the way. But we don't lose heart. We don't lose faith because we, ha- we saw the sign in the heavens as shown in Scripture that he is coming back one day. And he says, and this sign will be for you that in the last days you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with his angels with great glory and honor. He's coming back. And so we can trust in those signs. And so as we go today, as we go to a time of worship, let's remember that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, I admit this was a very um, odd message for myself. Lord, I thank you that even with what is said, even with what is prepared, Lord, I humbly ask that your words, the words that you would have to take root, would take root. And that even which is not of you, if anything was said that's not of you, that wasn't actually as occurred. Father, I pray it would be removed from our hearts and removed from our minds and that your spirit would fill it with the truth. And Lord, I humbly ask for each person here to like the wise men, Lord, we would be aware of the signs you put in through our life. The Holy Spirit, the greatest, great gift that we have is the promise of this counselor to guide us, convict us, and lead us in your ways. Lord, thank you that you show us to the way of your Father, that we know the way because of our faith in you, that you've gone and prepared a place for us and that you're coming back one day 
to bring us to where you are, to be in your presence forevermore. So I thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. I thank you, Lord, that your plan included all people, including us Gentiles, that that light, that star was for all of us, drawing us all to you. Thank you for all the evidence, your presence that is all around us. We worship you. Empower us to worship you with our very lives. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's sing together. Thank you, Jesus.